quite frankly, Vasu, you are one of the most important voices that we've had on this podcast to date. So I really want to work hard to do sort of a, you know, a round two with you and get even deeper into this stuff if you'd be willing to do it. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I'm, I'm all for it. I want to keep amplifying, well, not just my voice, but my, my, my community's voice as much as possible as well as the communities that I'm connected with. So I'm still very much open to talking a lot more about these more you know, broader concepts that are very much influential to any and all communities that we're a part of. Welcome back to the Rome podcast. I am your host, Chris Gerard. I'm the founder of Rome. My co-host is Corey Richards, Nat Geo photographer, alpinist, been on top of Everest a few times, made an attempt last year that we covered on the episodic series from Rome, The Line. Check it out. Very honored to have him as a co-host and very honored today to have our guest, Vasu Sojitra. Part two, you might've heard part one. It was the previous episode. We promised another one. So we had so much to say and so much more to explore that we had to do another episode. So here we are. We go deep as you would expect with Vasu and Corey. I mean, we talk about empathy. We talk about introspection. We talk about burning bridges and cancel culture in what can only be described as a difficult time for many people. Uh, We talk about transformative justice and Vasu digs into that, helps educate us a little bit. We talk about changing the narrative from me to we and about how connecting with the natural world, which is what we're all about here on this podcast and at Rome, can really be a very important type of self-care. Vasu talks a bit about indigenous culture, about black culture. As a person of color who also has a disability, uh, he is uniquely positioned in terms of his work. Even as a young man, he has worked a lot in these spaces, in these underrepresented communities, and he has a lot to share. And he talks to Corey and I about uh, what that journey has been like and, and answers a lot of point-blank questions from two white guys uh, about, about you know how to navigate all of this. We deeply appreciate the fact that he came on to share. We understand it is not his job nor the job of any person of color to educate those who come from a certain type of privilege as, as we do. But it's very helpful and very appreciated that Vasu was kind and generous with his time and you know, gave us some insights that I, that I hope many of the people in the audience can appreciate as we strive to become educated ourselves and walk the walk on this important subject at this important time. We talk a lot about language in this episode and the importance of language and understanding history. And we are all on a journey and uh, I myself am on a journey, a very, very start of that journey in fact, and I will make mistakes and thank you for calling those mistakes uh, to our attention at Rome and helping us grow and evolve. We are here to uh, be on that journey with all of you as well. So a little bit of business before we get started. Uh, This episode and all episodes and how we keep the lights on here at Rome is brought to you by Rome Academy. Rome Academy 
part of our mission at Rome is to inspire, educate, and enable Adventure with Purpose. What does that mean? Well, now we have this platform brought to you in part by our incredible, iconic founding members where we bring you that education. We show you how to mountain bike, how to gravel bike, how to climb, how to surf, fitness around these different sports, how to get better and level up and really improve your experience or get into this experience. Maybe you're a surfer who wants to mountain bike. Maybe you're a mountain biker who wants to climb. All of it's an adventure. All of it's about connecting with the natural world and with one another. All of it's about adventure with purpose. But we hope that you enjoy this new part of what we've brought to the world. We're very excited about it. It's $12.42 a month. It's really nothing. There's already six different classes you can take and numerous others coming, including in very excited about the build that we're doing right now on Conrad Anchor, the mentor of mentors, the man, the myth, the legend, climbing essentials. What a privilege it was to film this with him and to put it together to the backdrop of footage from Meru and from other projects. It is going to be truly an epic class, if you can call that. It's more like a movie that you can learn from. So uh, without further ado, let's jump into Vasu. And uh, thank you so much for being part of what we're doing here. And again, if you like what we're doing, uh, subscribe, please give us a review and we'll see you next time. Where we left off, and I don't know if you recall, is about building bridges. And I think in the three weeks since we spoke last, um, there's, we're, we're, everything is moving so fast right now uh, around this conversation specifically, around the language in it. Um, and and we, we were starting to get into some really, I think, meaty stuff talking about how do we build bridges? How do we be more inclusive? How do we um, not alienate allies? Uh, and I'm, I'm curious to, to get your opinion or your, I guess maybe your, your view on what's happening right now with building bridges and also burning bridges. I feel like, I feel like there's a lot of that going on, honestly, both, you know, we're trying to build bridges, but then also we're just calling people out in ways that might not be that helpful. Yeah. It's kind of, it's very difficult times. It seems like, um, and the way I see burning bridges is like, how do we build empathy for each other? And a lot of it's based around like also introspection of like who we are as people. And we just, I, I believe we just haven't been taught how to like really understand who we are. Um, whether that means, you know, understanding how we navigate society with our power privilege um, as men, um, as three of us as being men or, you know, as white folks or, folks without disabilities so it's like where where are we in that natural landscape societal landscape um and that is a very uncomfortable process for a lot of folks to go through because that breaks down complacency in our lives it also starts distributing power to folks that might not have it as much um by design so that's where people i feel like are losing their sense of freedom um, and that's where I feel like also people are a lot more fearful of losing that sense of freedom. Does that make, uh, is that? 
Yeah, no, no, it makes, I mean, I think a, li a little bit what we're talking about is understanding culpability, understanding uh, place in racial structure and how that societal racial, not just race, disabilities, all of that, um, understanding our place in it and taking a hard look at it. I, I think you're absolutely right. It's hugely uncomfortable. And I think it's, um, there's such a push for that and a need for it right now. And I think there's a certain element of um, uh, exhaustion around it, exacerbate, you know, like people are just they it's shutting people down too. So I, I guess I'm, I'm asking you like, what do you think, how do you maintain that element of compassion so as not to alienate allies? When, when people genuinely need to be corrected, how, how do you structure that conversation so that, because you seem to be very good at it. You're like, you're, you're more, you're more inclusive in, in your corrections or your education than other people. And I'm curious why, what you're doing different. Um, what I am doing different, what I'm doing different is um, I am genuinely connecting with a lot of these different spaces based on the privileges I have. So the privileges I have are to be able to have access to a lot of educational opportunities. Um, as a man, as living in the United States, living in Bozeman, a very affluent community, I can pretty much get any book, any podcast, any educational tool I want to be able to learn about these different cultures. And really like taking that in. Um, there's also like, you know, time and time again, I hear people in Bozeman say like, oh, there's not diversity in Bozeman. There is diversity in Bozeman. There is diversity in these really white spaces, but you have to really seek it out. Um, you have to look for these community events that are based around different cultures and that are opening it, their doors to the general public. So like, you know, for example, the Bozeman powwow, you can, we can all go there and learn about indigenous culture. You can also type into Google the importance of powwow culture in indigenous communities and you'll get like, hundreds of articles of like why powwows are important in indigenous communities and understand like it's actually, you know, a celebration and um, slight competition within like inner tribal work. So um, it's really cool to like start learning about that. And then once you start engaging in these communities, you can start talking about it in a genuine way. Um, and that's kind of what I've been working towards is to really do my own work first and then try to incorporate um, that understanding within these communities and start pretty much talking the talk and walking the walk. And then once I'm, you know, it's not like a formula, but once I've been able to engage in these communities, try to ask like what their needs are based on the opportunities and resources that I have available to myself um, based on the privileges that I have. Um, so it's kind of, a, I mean, it sounds like a timeline, but it's really not. It all is interconnected, like where I'm constantly doing my work um, behind the scenes, reading about things, reading articles, um, talking with my friends about intersectionality, talking about friends about indigenous culture and disability culture, race culture, all these things constantly um, to be able to then engage in these communities in a way that is less harmful. How do you think we can 
I mean, on that point, you're doing the, the, the legwork and I think it's such a good example of how to, to go about this. I mean, to, to genuinely get educated before activating the language, you know, in my experience, it's always better to be able to walk the walk and then start talking the talk. But I think oftentimes um, that's reversed. And, and, and right now, especially, um, I think it's people want to do the right thing. I think a lot of people want to do the right thing. And then they, they feel as though they're trying to do the right thing. And then they, you know, maybe they're not, maybe they're not saying something right. So there's this cancel culture that's erupting around uh, this conversation. And I don't, I'm lost in, in it a little bit because a, I do have, you know, I sit in a position of privilege and power by virtue of my gender, my gender identity, uh, my race, uh, and where I was born. Um, I, and so I, I, you know, I think there's a paralysis around some of the voices out there because so many people are afraid of, of getting caught up in this cancel culture. How, how do we combat cancel culture? And I'm asking that from, from two perspectives, from your perspective and from mine, like, what do you, how do we go about not getting caught up in that? Cause that I think is what's really erupted even since we've spoken last is just this very profound and, and, and I think oftentimes really awful cancel culture. That's just, it's like, it's like, who's more, it's like, a it's like, a, you know, sort of a competition of wokeness. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of cancel culture. And I was definitely abiding by that, even this year. And I've just completely taken that, I guess, more so um, out of my lifestyle, entirely. Um, and and I've seen how harmful that is, even to folks with privilege. Um, and I'm more looking into what is transformative justice. And I always recommend folks to look into that as well. Is um, and it, I kind of brought up a little bit of that, just not that terminology, a little like a few minutes ago. Is transformative justice is um, really looking at the roots of the harm that's being caused, and find creating a reconciling process from that, you know? So we're not neglecting all this harm that's been caused in our lives or in our relationships. We're really having these uncomfortable conversations to be able to then create more nurturing spaces so folks can be held accountable, make sure this harm is not being caused in, um, in the future, and then move together um, with whatever power or privilege marginality, margin, marginalization or oppression that we have. Um, and that is a very difficult thing to do because that means being more vulnerable, being more empathetic, being more compassionate, um, holding space for folks that might even still have power and privilege um, and understanding where they're coming from. And for me, it's also understanding that a lot of folks just don't know a lot of this stuff as well. Like we just have not been taught about how to actually treat people um, in a world that's so oppressive. So I don't know, I don't know how many times I've been told at a young age, like treat people how you wanna be treated. That's not the case. I don't wanna be treated the same way 
they treat me. Um, I have a lot of different, <laughs> I have a lot of different needs that are not the same as your needs. Right. Um, especially living with a disability, especially with a, as a person of color. Um, I want to be treated differently in a way that um, is able to nurture and care for those needs. And I want to be able to nurture and care for your needs when it comes down to it. But I also want folks to acknowledge that there has been harm caused and how can we make sure that harm doesn't get caused in the future. Um, and that comes down to being very much open to having these conversations. A lot of people don't want to have these conversations, which is, um, and any relationship we have in our lives is not a one-way street. So um, it all has to be two-way and it all has to grow um, reciprocally um, when it comes down to it. I think that, you know, one of the things that Corey's talking about a little bit in, in what you're saying, Vasu, is, you know, we need to have these conversations as uncomfortable as they, as they might be. And we need to be willing to, to go out on that limb, on that thin ice, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, especially those of us who, who enjoy the, the privilege of not having all of these culminated um, disadvantages uh, of oppression. The, the advent right now of this cancel culture, I think is putting some maybe well-intentioned people in, into a place of how far do I want to go in terms of having these conversations, right? How, how far can I go out there to your point? I'm just reacting to what you're saying about some people don't want to have these conversations. There are mm -hmm. some people who start with, they don't want to have them period because they're actually enjoy, they're very conscious of their privilege and they're enjoying it. Mm -hmm. you know, those, those are racists, like in the classic sense, I would say. Right. Yeah. And then you have everybody else who maybe isn't acknowledging history, doesn't know history is ignorant to history is learning. And frankly is uh, maybe uncomfortable is, is one thing, but then afraid is another, right. When, if we're afraid to have these conversations, especially publicly as we are right now. Right. Mm -hmm then what does that do to progress? You know, how do we, how do we, to, to what you were just saying, how do we build those bridges in a way that acknowledges that can't just be, Hey, it's all good. Cause it's not all good, but right. how do we make it so that people who, who are well-intentioned and who truly do believe the things that you're saying about wanting there to be equity and diversity, but are actually, you know, nervous about what, what advantage do they have to speak out if they're going to get called out for saying the wrong thing, wearing the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. Um, you know, how do we reconcile that? And it's not, that's certainly not like, oh, poor them, because it's sort of like, yeah, well, welcome to what it feels like <laughs> to a certain degree, but how do you reconcile that? You know, how, how do you, um, see us being able to make progress um, and, and bridges if that exists? That's a, yeah, that's a definitely loaded question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's minefields, dude. It's minefields. Yeah, right? right, exactly. Um, I always say like, you know, coming from a place of love and understanding and patience, um, given that I've grown up with a disability, I've worked in disability for a very long time compared to my age. 
Um, there's a lot of patience and understanding that comes with that, um, as well as love and just really questioning where people are at. You know, it's like, hey, do you know about this process or do you know what cultural appropriation is? Oh, let me share some resources with you so you're able to learn that and then make sure that you're implementing some of those action items into your life. Um, you know, so like, it's coming from like, oh, it sounds like you actually weren't taught this stuff. I have access to these resources. I'll share them with you and we can learn together and move together. Um, that causes less harm. Um, and a lot of the times, like I'm, I'm hoping that these conversations more in the professional sense become um, more based around also paying for these services, um, whether it be like consultation work or whatever, you know, a lot of folks behind or having marginalized identities are the ones teaching our white friends or um, non-disabled friends about a lot of these processes. So I'm hoping one of these days that that switches and like a lot of this work is getting paid for. So these marginalized identities have a little bit more um, capacity to be able to do this work because I okay, right now I'm not getting paid that much for some of this work and I'm just you know putting a lot of time and effort into it I'm hoping as time goes on I'm able to um, at least put food on the table you know so right. are but, you uh, are you um, seeing opportunities on that level though or like are mm -hmm. people offering you know are they saying hey can you do a training or are you uh, you know, seeing that respect, I guess, starting to emerge more, or is it a constant, still a constant sort of explanation of, hey, this is real work? No, I think uh, the BLM movement really put into perspective for a lot of outdoor industry companies, like, oh, shit, like, we have to do this work behind the scenes. You know, like, I was, me and a few cohorts and acquaintances have been talking about this for years, and finally, people are listening um, and that's, you know, finally because of the harm that's being caused to indigenous and black communities that they're finally listening based around COVID and, um, police brutality. So it's like, how far does it have to go to make people listen? It's like, shit, like people have to be dying to make sure white folks are listening to these narratives, which is kind of messed up, you know, so it's like, we were saying this beforehand, we were saying it during, and we're still saying it after that, like this stuff has to happen. Um, people have to be actively listening to a lot of these narratives. Because a lot of the times these tables um, around nonprofits, around companies are predominantly white. And a lot of those narratives aren't being shared. A lot of the needs, my needs, my community's needs aren't being shared um, when it comes down to it. And based on that, all these more systemic oppression um, issues are still being perpetuated and exacerbated um, because we don't have a seat at the table. Our voices aren't being heard. They're being drowned out. People are constantly being defensive when they're being called out. Um, and it's, it's causing more and more harm in our own communities because we don't have a voice. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping as, you know, time goes on and, this consultation work that I'm trying to develop with a few acquaintances and cohorts um, builds um, as well as like other consultation work and other, you know, work that a lot of amazing revolutionaries in the actor industry are doing. Um, 
it creates more equitable, inclusive, diverse spaces that are moving towards a more reconciled process towards justice. So can, do you think that, um, cause I've, I've been in this conversation with several of my friends uh, around compensation for consultation, right? And I, I firmly believe that that is the pathway forward. I believe it has to be. Um, and I think there need to be very clear boundaries and structures around what is consultation, what is conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that gets confusing for people. Oftentimes they say, hey, can we, can we chat? And people go, well, are you ready to pay me for the chat? And I get that. I understand that because there's so much, uh, there's such a demand and a burden that's placed on BIPOC to explain to white folks what's happening and, and, and the actual issues. Um, do you feel like there's a place for, um, or I guess, how do I phrase this question? At what point is it appropriate, do you think, for white people to step into that leadership role around, uh, around race and discrimination and disabilities? So like, at what point is it okay for somebody like, uh, Robin DiAngelo's book to 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 have impact, right? Because we've we've you know like white fragility. Everybody's like read white fragility, and then everybody's like actually it's not right. And then you know so, so we mm-hmm. see this flip flop. And I'm so curious at what point is it appropriate? Do you think um, you know for for white people to step into that leadership role? of other white people saying, hey, look, no, you are racist. We are racist and this is what it looks like. Yeah, that's um, that's definitely a gray area because I know a lot of really aware white folks, at least, actually I call them people that are white um, <laughs> and uh, happen to be white and yeah. um, are very much aware of their privilege and know when to step down. Um, but, and when, when I ask them like, hey, are you talking to your white friends about this? Are you making sure your communities are hearing these narratives that I'm sharing with you? Because time again, time and time again, like I've shared these narratives and then my white friend shares my narratives to a white colleague or acquaintance or whoever, random stranger. And that white stranger is listening to them instead of me, even though I'm saying the same fucking thing. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, I literally just right. said the same thing. Like, you know, I've had a few um, friends of color that have ran into that situation as well. And you're like, seriously, like, um, why, why did you not just listen to me in the first place? Did it just sound like I'm an angry black woman or like um, an angry indigenous person? Like, what's going on here? Um, so that's, that's where I see it is like, you know, I think white people need to be having these conversations within their own spaces. Um, Uh There's also, you know, I'm all about affinity spaces. I wish there were more white affinity spaces, but there's also this um, warning that I give people in creating white affinity spaces into hopefully not transitioning that space into a white supremacist space. So there's like, you know, just understanding like, yo, these spaces have to be talking about these major issues in a way that's elevating BIPOC, not elevating white culture, Um, which unfortunately a lot of white spaces right now are doing. Um, And And how does that, how does that happen Vasu 
like if you have even again well-intentioned <laughs> people who are white if they don't if they don't have the the input or the education you could see where those that that could that could happen even on in an like an unintentional way because they don't even know that they're they're you know sort of advocating and and for one another in that space if they're not held to task or held to history mm-hmm. by whether it's a, a white person or a person of color in that room um you know that that's a i'd never even i've never even thought of that like you said the 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 danger of that turning into a white supremacist space. Um, and there that sort of goes back to, to Corey's question of, you know, it's, this is complex. How do you do this in a, and like you said, there's not a timeline or a formula for it. And coming from a place of love is, is important. You know, how, how does that, that again, I think we're going back to like, how do we make these effective bridges so mm-hmm. that, that there's not a defensiveness among people who are white there's an understanding, but there's also like, yeah, there are some things you have to check yourself with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know if that's like a checklist, but it's like a pre-flight, like, okay, you know, are these things being adequately considered as we're having these conversations and are they adequately represented? Yeah. Um, and I don't know how you actually do that. That's no, there's no question there other than have you, where, I guess, where have you seen it be successful? Um, you, you kind of brought up a good point there is this checklist um, every time I have a lot of these more in-depth conversations in group settings is um, I make sure that there's expectations beforehand that are being agreed upon. So I have like a 10 to 12 point checklist of expectations, whether that be like, you know, act, make sure you're actively listening or being present in the moment when someone is talking, um, one mic only uh, work to not interrupt. Um, marginalized identities have to express more emotional labor when it comes down to these conversations or um, expect, don't expect closure in these conversations. So all these expectations that are being set before these conversations are being had is so, so incredibly um, important because then it helps make sure the group is on track but also like there has to be a bold self-aware moderator to make sure the group is staying on track, um, being held accountable to these expectations um, to be able to you know, move forward in a way that is providing justice for marginalized identities. Um, I've, I don't know, I mean, I've, it seems like there's a lot and a lot of book clubs that are popping up around the country um, based around anti-racism work which is amazing. And I'm hoping a lot of those spaces are creating these expectations and checklists to make sure that they are checking themselves throughout any conversation that they're having, um, which is so important in breaking down our power and privilege and understanding a lot of these nuances. So um, that's, that's where I'm at. And that's where I usually try to gravitate towards is like, just like working with kids, like we have to set expectations for ourselves so we stay on track because our minds can just wander off into a lot of um, self-centering and um, you know fragility or whatever it may be able white cis fragility whatever it is hmm. um, so like I, I always think you know setting those expectations are so so important that's a really um, 
when I hear you say set expectations and when I hear what you're t- talking about in that regard, it's, it's one of those principles that is so easily overlooked and it's so effective. Like if we set goals in life, it's really important to say, well, what does success actually look like and write it down and have like, you know, in, in this case, you're saying, what are our expectations? Let's name them. Let's hold to them. And in other cases it's, well, if I set this goal, what does success to me look like? Um, and, and I'm not, there isn't a question here. I'm just agreeing with you because I think that's such a powerful tool that people forget that when they're having these conversations, they can set their own parameters. They can set goals for the conversation and say, okay, what does success out of this conversation look like? What, you know, what are we hoping to achieve and what are the expectations and what are the sort of the, the goalposts here where we know, Hey, we've stepped outside of the realm of uh, productive discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, that is such a powerful, powerful tool. And I'm so happy you brought it up because um, conversation is great, but aimless conversation without structure specifically around these issues, I think can, um, it can almost go down a sort of a dark path. And I think that's what you're talking about, about creating spaces of almost inadvertent white supremacy. Right. Um, yeah. Covert. Right. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I always try to connect it to the natural landscape and the like adventures that I go on. And I don't know if you do, either of you do as well. Is like, if we're not setting expectations on these massive missions that we're going on, then like, we're totally fucked and we're going to kill ourselves. So it's like, <laughs> you know, like if we're not setting these boundaries, these expectations or like when to turn around and like what kind of communication mm-hmm. styles we want to use, like mm-hmm. how we want to communicate, where we want to set up camp, like all these things that we you know, as experts in a lot of these spaces, like we don't really have to as much communicate and it's all kind of just implied, but, you know, given some of these outings might be new or like different mountains or different treks, um, we still have to set these boundaries and expectations throughout them. And it's the same thing with these conversations. It's like, yo, if we're not setting these expectations, we're gonna set ourselves up for failure instead of success. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's that's actually really, Sorry, CJ, do you want to say, I, I, just, interrupt. I think uh, it goes back to, you had mentioned identity and, and um, you, what makes me, it makes me think of Vasu is if you don't decide beforehand who you are in these moments, you know, when to turn back, like Corey, you just went through this last year. When you get into the, into the, shit so to speak whether it's on a mission out outdoors on everest as Corey just went through or you're in the midst of an emotional moment that's where we we can make really bad decisions if mm-hmm. we haven't like you said set expectations ahead of time of when we're there this is how we were we are agreeing this is how we're going to act and it's, so there's a really interesting parallel there around deciding who you are mm-hmm. What have you been able to extrapolate from your experiences as a professional athlete and inject into these conversations? Aside from, you know, we just hit on one, what are our expectations? What are our boundaries? But as a prolific athlete in this field and specifically um, furthering this conversation, what else have you been able to pull from your athletic career that's useful? right now 
Um, I actually just went through a turnaround process on Rainier as well. Um, we had to turn around 2,800 feet from the summit, which is a bummer, but you know, I don't give a shit, like whatever, the mountain's gonna be there constantly, you know? Um, and I want to make sure I'm safe and causing no harm in my communities if I'm gone. So um, I think for me, that emotional strength that these adventures have given me is so, so big. Um, I have still yet to find my physical limit because usually when I'm finding, usually when I'm trying to push my own physical boundaries, my emotional strength is still there. So it's like trying to develop that over and over again. Um, and that correlates to my emotional strength when it comes to these really uncomfortable conversations of like, look, like I've gone through a lot of hard shit in my life. Like I can do this again as well. Um, it's, easy as, it's easier said than done, of course. A lot of these conversations are incredibly difficult. Um, but, you know, I'm, I've been there, I've done that. I think I can push it a little bit more. I've been there, I've done that, I can push it a little bit more, I can push it a little bit more. And then like we just start creating a bigger, bigger space for ourselves, a bigger, more comfortable space for ourselves, learning a lot more about ourselves, learning about our physical limits, whether that be in the mountains or these activities, um, you know? So that's, that's the kind of correlation that I've been able to create. And I definitely noticed that on my trip up for near. I was like, look, the entire time I was fully with it. And I was incredibly grounded and I was actually, you know, helping and supporting my two friends that were on it to be grounded as well. Cause they were having a few like micro meltdowns, um, whether it would be just a very scary, no fall zone pitch or, um, just being kind of, you know, scared of like boulders tumbling down towards us kind of thing. So, um, just having and being able to hold that space for myself has definitely been a growing and learning process and it's definitely correlated to a lot of these more uncomfortable conversations so fortitude and discomfort it sounds like is the theme of that answer um and then and then sort of uh adapting that and that uh, understanding that well i've been a really uncomfortable before uh and it's been really hard before but i can but i've also achieved in those moments as well yeah, and I mean, my, my vision of success is never conquering anything. Um, yeah, we had the expectation of summiting Rainier, but like our priority was making it home safe, you know? So, um, and that's the same thing is like one of the expectations I go over when, in any of these conversations is don't ex- expect closure, you know? Closure for me on Rainier would have been summiting Rainier and getting home. But, um, and in a lot of these conversations, like, you know, fully reconciling the harm and making sure we're moving forward together. But, you know, it's just not going to happen in one conversation. There's a lot of harm that's been caused throughout our histories. um, And there's a lot of generational trauma that's been caused. So it's going to take a lot of time and energy um, from everyone to be able to. Um, reconcile that what do you what do you do personally when you find yourself faced with the exhaustion that comes with this kind of 
consistent conversation. I mean, because it, it's important to have these conversations, but they are, like you said, they, they, they take a lot out of us. They're tremendously emotionally um, uh, costly, um, not in a bad way. They just, they, they drain us. And so what do you, what are your, what do you do to recharge when you feel burdened by the conversation? I go run up a mountain. <laughs> nice. Um, usually, yeah, it's kind of weird. I was telling my friends the other year while I was still with these nonprofits, was like my first and foremost priority is to change my narrative from me to we um, and making sure that I live an interdependent life where I center my community always and first. Um, and then I am... And at the same time, I'm still taking care of myself. So I don't want to burn myself out. And my self-care is actually, weirdly enough, my professional career, my professional athlete career. So being able to connect with the natural world, being able to share my narratives on social media, uh, being able to share my community's narratives on social media, um, or any conversation that I might be having is my version of self-care. Um, yeah, so that's the easy, simple. That's amazing, Vasu, that you're you're integrating social media into your self care because I think so many so many struggle with their relationship with their own consumption and creation and uh, of social media. Um, it seems like you really have the way that you just described it you know, maybe could you speak to that a little bit about your relationship with, with the gram? And I mean, cause it, it's so prevalent, right. And it's such a huge part of everything that we're going through right now in terms of a lot of this conversation. So mm -hmm. yeah. What is your relationship with your social feeds and, and yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like, I mean, I'm definitely have a minor addiction to my phone, unfortunately, cause it's my livelihood. And I, that's how I connect to a lot of disability advocates and all that kind of stuff, but still not an excuse to just constantly stare at my phone. Um, but the way I've transitioned the use of my social media is to make sure I still have autonomy over what I'm saying instead of the companies I am connected with or um, initiatives, initiatives that I take part in have control over that narrative, which I have turned down time and time again, even if it had monetary compensation. Um, I just don't want to lose myself when it comes down to sharing my narrative, um, which again comes with financial privilege. Like I am kind of well off at the moment, so I'm not doing the worst when it comes to putting food on the table. I do understand a lot of other folks do have to do sponsored ads and um, take part in these initiatives. And I'm hoping because of that, they don't lose their sense of self um, when it comes down to it. Um, but, you know, I, the way I'm utilizing social media is to just share a lot of the commu communities that I'm connected with, their narratives, um, in a way that is based around rhetoric of ethos and um, connecting more on an emotional level. Um, which I believe is like one of the strongest ways that people are able to connect with each other and build empathy. Um, 
on an emotional level, whether it be storytelling or lived experience. It's, I, I, I want to go back to something that you said that I think is so powerful. One of the stories that I did for Geographic that I've talked a little bit about on here before was a story about happiness with um, the writer was Dan Buettner, who did his most of his work through blue zones, which is looking at the areas of longevity on the planet where people live the longest. And one of the things that he talks about is community, friendship, a close circle of allies and, and um, mentors. And you just said, I try to move from me to we. Um, and A, scientifically, that's a huge point towards moving of moving towards happiness um, or what we experience as happiness when we, when we make ourselves in service of others. Um, I think it's a really interesting point right now around the, the conversation around uh, race specifically. Um, how have you best mobilized in, in being a we person instead of a me person? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously it's through your work with NGOs and whatnot, but, but on Instagram, how do you be a we person in a me space? That is, yeah, I'm trying to figure out that process as well. Um, a lot of it is sharing those narratives that I hear time and time again in our communities, as well as connecting it into my own personal narrative right i have this like my one of my friends is just like i don't know how you do it but you are able to connect like a banana to racism and i'm like yeah i don't know either <laughs> so um maybe that's your superpower maybe other than like ninja sticking um yeah. so, <laughs> the second superpower yeah second superpower. Like, yeah. um and uh yeah it's 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 that ethos, it's that emotional connection to these greater narratives, these more you know, umbrella narratives that are happening around a lot of these communities and being like, look, like I've been affected by it too, or like a friend of mine have been, has been affected by it too, and this is how we're mobilizing to move forward to make sure this kind of harm doesn't be, isn't caused anymore within our communities. Um, so in that sense, like, the communities that I'm connected with feel validated, feel heard, feel like their narrative is important in this greater sense of life um, to help bring their voice to the table as much as possible in that intersectional way. Does it? Yeah, it's, it's so I try to like frame a lot of my um, captions and blogs or whatever in a way that is able to connect to a lot of different people. It's incredibly difficult, hmm. but it takes a lot of time. Does it feel good right now? I mean, and this is a very raw, real question. I, I, this is maybe even better unspoken, but I'm gonna ask it and feel free to push back. But does it feel good to, to be able to use your language your your knowledge your expertise um to grow it and i mean do you feel 
in some ways liberated and vindicated in this moment around all of this conversation that you've been having for so long and crafting the language around to finally be, I mean, you've got three podcasts back to back today. Like what, does that feel good? Does, or, or does it feel um, invasive? Um, I have this, uh, battle with the world word um altruism because it is right. <laughs> self-serving as well i have that battle too yeah 100 percent. but yeah i mean of course it feels good um but i'm like i know i still have i'm i still have myopic visions of a lot of these issues um which i'm working to dismantle in my own self constantly um and I, I, I very much enjoy sharing these resources with other people to be able to feel that sense of freedom. Um, and like that same sense of freedom I get from like skiing a gnarly slope or whatever. Um, you know, it's just like that kind of slight liberation that I get. And I, know, I also know that I still have to do a lot of work as well to be able to connect with the communities that I'm already part of. Um, it's not just, you know, again, I don't expect closure in any of these spaces ever. And I try to disconnect my ego from it as much as possible, um, which is so difficult. And a lot of people kind of take that um, intention in a way that might, I mean, I've been called ego driven constantly, you know, taking up space here and there as a, a man of color. Um, but I, I work intentionally to make sure these spaces are elevating all people, including the most marginalized. So yeah, it does feel good, um, but it's not based around like that. It's more based around building this community resiliency. Um, and that just, that will take time. And if people wanna listen, great. If not, like I'm still here as a resource and opportunity because of the privileges I have um whenever they want support if they need support um or if they think i'm just causing harm constantly like then i'm gonna not then but i'm gonna continue to work on that um hopefully that answers your question i don't know i'm just i'm still having a internal battle between altruism because it is slightly self-serving but i also look at it in this metaphor of do you know the airplane model of like make sure you put your own face mask on put, first. Put your mask on first, yeah. Um, so that's that's the way I look at it as well as like, look, I do need to take care of myself in this fucked up world, but I also wanna take care of others as well. Um, so I can live a more sustainable reciprocal life with our natural landscape as well as our communities. And I guess that, that brings me to, I know you've gotta jump on and help more people understand different things. Um, I, our, our listeners, our community at Rome, um, I hope they've been, I hope they've been, you know, moved or pissed off, or I hope they felt something listening to this conversation because I, I, you know, like we talked about, you're the only person we've had on twice. And I just really appreciate your language and your ability to articulate and, and talk about these hard issues. I, I want to ask, 
um, and as a challenge to our listeners to engage with your answer, what does your community or the communities you're serving right now as a we person, what do they need? What do they need from us? What do they need from me personally? What do, what do you need? Um, you know, what can people do if they're listening and want to actually engage and move from me to we move from, you know, I'm woke to, I'm actually fucking doing something. Right. Like you personally, what your communities. That's, um, that's another loaded question. Thank you. Um, (laughs) let's see. So there's this incredible model that I looked at, um, years ago of how we can live an interdependent life in whatever capacity, whatever career we have. And, um, you know, I, I just want people to be as mindful as possible in the spaces that they are in and be able to walk the talk, um, you know, read these books, read these stories, listen to different narratives, follow different people on Instagram, look through my follows and just follow a lot of them. I don't care, like whatever, you know, learn about indigenous culture because that's still here. Um, That's always been here for thousands and thousands of years and understand like that they're doing something right. Like, you know, once colonizers came here, like in 400 years, they fucked up a lot of shit. (laughs) So, you know, indigenous people have been doing something very, very powerful in these spaces. Um, Black communities are incredibly resilient. And what does that mean? Like, why, how is that possible? Even though their generations ago, not even generations ago, like one generation ago, um, people were enslaved. So it's like, what, you know, just understanding a lot of these processes um, and knowing where a our history is coming from. Um, it's going to take again a lot of time. You know, it's it's just it's it's incredibly difficult. I think um, for anyone to be able to unpack a lot of this stuff in their own day to day lives. I just want people to show up um, and just sit there, be a fly on the wall, listen actively, listen to uh, these communities, um, make space for these communities by using the right language or just language. Um, compensating folks because they are putting so much energy into a lot of this work, Um, building spaces, um, sharing these spaces, um, making sure we're not oppressive, we're not entitled when it comes to any of these mountain activities, sharing resources, whatever it may be. So um, any of those are ways that people can get involved, at least that's what I think. I mean, there's hundreds of different ways and I can write them down, but it might take a while. (laughs) I think it's more just to have some, some places to, for people to think and go in their minds. And obviously in show notes, I think uh, we always love to ask guests about books that they're reading and books that they, you know, it doesn't have to be about the topics we've been talking about, but anything that you want to offer in that way um, is great. Uh, We, we appreciate it and hopefully our listeners um, and people who watch this take note and actually engage because it's one thing to listen to podcasts and feel good about yourself for, for getting informed. It's another thing to actually, like you talked about, do the work and um, learn the language and become part of the conversation rather than just listen to it. 
Yeah, I don't want people to feel good after this podcast. Let's just say. Yeah, <laughs> um, I want to work. Yeah, I want I want them to put their privilege to work. I want them to mobilize. I want them to share power with our communities. Um, I want them to either pry open a space or bu bunch of spaces for folks to be able to sit at the table, at the board table, at the leadership table, on their ambassador teams, on their athlete teams. Um, that's what I want is just these companies to understand why it's important to have different faces at their table. That's, I mean, that's, and I think what's so tragic and, and frustrating and also beautiful about that is that it's all we're asking is for people to understand why it's important. And that's not a, that's not a, such a huge cross to bear, you know, that's not mm -hmm. a huge, but that's, it's so simple, but I think it's so misunderstood. And, and I just want to, again, express how grateful we are for you taking the time. I know there's some irony to, you know, about like, nobody gets paid to be on the podcast and, and your willingness to, to come on and, and talk about these things. Um, in a time where I do agree with you that this kind of conversation needs to be compensated is not uh, unnoticed. And we, we deeply appreciate the commitment that you have um, to us as part of your outdoor community, but to your communities as well, and how we can be a part of those communities and advocates for them. So again, thank you so much for, um, for being the voice that you are and stepping into a role that uh, is incredibly difficult and, and riddled with, with pitfalls and landmines. And I just appreciate you deeply. So yeah. thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, thanks for the time, Basu. I know you've got two more. <laughs> One today, more. So, yeah. I realize it's not actually a podcast. It's more, um, do you all know intersectional, um, wait, what is it called again? Sorry, one sec. You all should definitely follow these folks. Is uh, Intersectional Environmentalist. Leia Thomas. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, we'd love to have her on at some point. Just was doing some of the research after our first conversation around like reading some Crenshaw and because you mentioned that and, and then the sort of the legacy of what uh, Leia is doing with environmentalism as it you know, sort of relates to that, that feminist. Um, so it's, it, it's really cool. I'm still trying to understand all of the history on it, but that's, is that who you're talking to next or? Um, actually her name is, I think she's another co-leader of that space. Uh, Deandra, um, <laughs> I believe. So I'm assuming she and Leah are co-conspirators when it comes to the intersectional environmentalist. Yeah, I think it's really important, and for I think it, it has a lot of uh, a lot of potential in the outdoor community, outdoor industry, mm -hmm. um, as these two, you know, diversity and sustainability. Every OR show, every it's like that's the lip speak is like those are our causes, um, and I think you know we can do a lot better on both of them. But uh, I think that that voice is is needed. So yeah. good. Uh, Awesome, man. Thanks so much for your time. Um, yeah. I'm going to be up in Bozeman uh, in a couple weeks oh, cool. to work with Conrad. Um, so I'll uh, go grab your phone number that you sent me and uh, yeah. I'll, I'll let you know when I'm coming up. Maybe we can uh, get together. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Definitely. Cool. Thanks, man. Really yeah. appreciate it.
Yeah. Take care. Yeah. Good Thanks luck recovering everybody. off, off of your, your 7,000 dips. <laughs> yeah. Whatever it was, it was outrageous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, it, sometime, you know, we should just have a conversation. We'll, you know, we could have you back on a third time mm-hmm. and uh, focus more on like your missions and just, yeah. you know, uh, I have way too many I, I'm like one of those folks that have like hundreds of different ideas and like maybe two or three of them actually stick. So <laughs> that's how it works though. You yeah, got to take, you got to be more at bats. You need a lot of at bats, you know, yeah, exactly. to hit some, hit some homers. So yeah, my friends get pissed at that, but it's like, well, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Yeah, I'd say whatever. Just try, man. Yeah. All you can do. Exactly. Awesome. All right, awesome. brother. Awesome. Thanks, Vasu. Appreciate yeah, it, man. Take care. Okay. Talk day. soon. See ya. Bye. Thanks so much for being here. You made it all the way through the episode. Important stuff. And as I said in the intro, we're all learning. So thanks for bringing our blind spots to our attention. We appreciate that. We know that we have them. And we're going to keep on persevering to bring new voices onto the show and learn more. And once again, if you like what we're doing here, please subscribe. Give us a review. We appreciate it. And head on over to Rome Academy if you want to learn how to participate or level up in any of these ways of connecting with nature and adventure with purpose. Thanks again. I'm Chris Gerard, founder of Rome. I appreciate you for listening. <laughs>